Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. It's good to be with you. And as things are moving so fast these days, I want to let you know this show was recorded on Friday. Like many of you, I spent the last week in my house. Millions of Americans participated in social distancing. We stayed off the subways and sidewalks to reduce the spread of COVID-19. And even though it's only been a week, so much has changed. While many of us have the privilege of working from home, that doesn't apply to the millions of Americans that are hurting right now. The folks that would be working in restaurants or hotels. The people who were once employed by airlines, amusement parks, and cruise ships. Musicians and actors and stagehands. Hundreds of thousands of Americans are not working. And the expectation is that the number will grow as we settle into a possible recession. Things shifted quickly. We went from the longest economic expansion in U.S. history to the middle of a pandemic. There's so much for medical professionals and the public to learn about the coronavirus, a disease that has a presence in every state in the U.S. and has consumed populations in both China and Italy. It doesn't help that we've received conflicting information from the top. Coronavirus, you know that, right? Coronavirus. And this is their new hoax. The worst is yes ahead for us. We have it very well under control. We pretty much shut it down. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. You think you're in line with the outbreak. You're already three weeks behind. We saw How does he get things wrong about his own proposal? I don't, I, I, don't, I don't think he got things wrong at all. I mean, cargo's not banned. And we were very clear uh, that people misinterpreted the comment on cargo. We're going to be able to make that drug available almost immediately. The Food and Drug Administration later noted there are no approved drugs for treating, curing, or preventing COVID-19. Yeah, no, I don't take responsibility at all. Governors are supposed to be doing a lot of this work, and they are doing a lot of this work. The federal government's not supposed to be out there buying vast amounts of items and then shipping. You know, we're not a shipping clerk. So states are trying to fill the gaps themselves from distributing tests, sourcing protective equipment, and issuing guidelines for those of us watching this unfold from home. The pandemic is also reverberating across politics. So far, at least six states have postponed their primaries, and concerns are being raised about how to ensure a safe and fair election this November should the health crisis continue to rage. Louisiana's Secretary of State, R. Kyle Ardwin, joined me to discuss how he came to that decision. Given the Louisiana's history with natural disasters, we had emergency powers uh, embedded in the law uh, that allowed myself to declare a state of emergency to the governor and then the governor to issue an executive order to postpone the election. My staff and I worked very uh, long and hard on looking at various options, trying to hold the election on the April 4th date. But unfortunately, we just couldn't get over the fact that most of our uh, election commissioners are in the vulnerable age category of 65 and older. Mm -hmm. And our most chronic voters are also in that age group. So we didn't feel like we would be responsible if we went ahead with the election. When we looked at the dates possible to postpone it to, we found that we could still hold the election prior to the Democratic National Convention, thus giving the Democrats, if they'll adjust their rules, the opportunity to seat delegates from the state of Louisiana. 
I called the governor's office and we had a discussion about it. And that I brought that point up. Neither of us wanted to really take the politics into account. We thought the important thing was to make certain that our citizens were safe and that we could promote the election at a time when more people could participate. And so that's what we did. And the governor was willing to deal with the Democratic Party himself. So that made it a strong bipartisan decision. I didn't call either political party prior to making my decision. What was the reaction like? Again, when you're the first, you often get the brunt of the reaction, good and bad. What was the response both in the state and then maybe even what you saw nationally? In the state, we were very uh, pleased with the response. Even the Democratic Party chair issued a statement supporting the governor and myself in our decisions, and they would work with the Democratic National Committee in hopes that they would help with the situation given the importance of this decision and the grave consequences that um, we could have faced should we have gone with it. Outside the state, we got a lot of, obviously, media inquiries And all throughout this week, we've been just getting response of positive leadership attributes of making certain that we put public health ahead of uh, political expediency. The rule, the Democrats' rule, is that the last primary can be held on June 9th. But your expectation is, because of this unique situation that we're in, the DNC is not going to penalize the state of Louisiana for going past the set cutoff date. Um, certainly, that's my expectation. I believe that's the governor's expectation of his his own political party. I think anything different than that, uh, I think, would be irresponsible to the citizens of Louisiana who are Democrats and expect to be represented fully at the Democratic National Convention. Uh, given the fact that other states have followed suit behind our decision, uh, and I think I just read recently that Georgia is even considering moving their their date back again. I think it's important that the DNC recognize not the politics of this, but the public safety of this situation that we face. Uh, That is a growing concern. Uh, We made the decision we were when we were under 100 cases, and now we're we're well uh, above 300 cases in Louisiana as we speak and growing. I think we made the most prudent decision. I think it was the right thing to do, and I'd do it again tomorrow if I had to. We have cases of coronavirus now in all 50 states. Are the secretaries of states nationally getting together and talking about what this could mean for November and how to, if indeed this is still going on or voters still feel uncomfortable gathering in places or serving as poll workers, how do you ensure free and fair elections? I think that we have to look at all options that are on the table for us. We certainly have the opportunity to utilize emergency powers in another section of the law that allows me to to develop uh, a plan for our state for the November elections uh, and maybe even adjust our plans for the June and July elections. Uh, I know that there's going to be a conference call among secretaries of state to discuss options what we're seeing in our own states and um, exchange ideas, if you will, and really be able to discuss these issues in depth. Well, I just have to continue on conference calls. But I think what I know of my colleagues around the country is that we're all willing to pull together. We're the oldest bipartisan association in America, and we're all looking to learn from each other's experiences 
in order to deliver democracy to the people of Louisiana in the best format that each state needs. As you probably know, there have been a lot of suggestions that maybe this is the time where all states now go to mail-in only ballots like states like Washington and Colorado have done. What do you think about that? Well, I think that now is not the time to um, put forth political solutions. Um, I think, um, unfortunately, some are taking advantage of the situation and looking to promote their own political agenda that they've been promoting for years. I'm going to look at it for Louisiana, how best we can do it. If that's in increasing an opportunity of uh, paper ballots, then we'll consider that. Uh, I would have to pass that by the legislature. So it's going to take a, a, a much broader scope of cooperation in order to do that. Um, but I've got to develop a particular plan that will work best for Louisianans and a plan that they trust. And Louisianans, through experience, uh, don't really trust paper all that much. Um, but we have to see, you know, where they don't we're, trust where paper ballots. No, they'd rather have screens is what they, you're saying. Yes. Yes. And because they think somebody can take a ballot and mark it up, mark it up, um, take ballot out of your mailbox, mm. um, to, oh, I uh, see. Like a, yeah. a vote by mail. They don't right. trust. Right. Right. It's not necessarily that they won't, wouldn't trust um, a safe environment of voting on paper um, in a um, op- more open facility, um, which would take a lot of effort from our part. But mail ballots are, or in particular are something that um, our, our citizens, a majority of our citizens don't really trust um, and haven't trusted for some time. They, That's interesting. They pretty, Have you... Do you yeah, we, do you know that because you've tried to push for more mail-in balloting and the and the response has been one of you know dis- disapproval? Well, they you know there's been efforts to expand um, paper ballots mm. and um, that's been met with um, skepticism. Uh, Any time that there are issues in an election in Louisiana, it's surrounded uh, the paper by the paper ballots issues. Um, and folks just don't they, one they don't trust the postal service uh, two they they're they're concerned with um, fraud and um, we just as a side note last election cycle we had over half a million people participate in early voting on machines we had leased um, and so our, our folks are used to voting on election machines uh, voting machines excuse me and um, feel very comfortable with that and that process. They understand the process. They're confident with it. It's it's the paper that they're worried about uh, fraud issues. Right. And again, paper meaning mailing it in Correct. rather than showing up in person. Correct. Um, if June 20th comes along and it seems clear that it is not safe to bring people into contact with each other at these polling places, would you be willing to say to Louisiana voters, could you say, look, based on the powers that I have, emergency powers, the only way to vote now is going to be remotely. You're going to have to, I'm going to mail ballots out and people have to mail them back. Well, the problem with with that at this point, Amy, is that we don't have the time Mm. to uh, print enough ballots. Um, We're going to, you know, when we dealt with Katrina and Rita, we had months and months to deal with how to perfect that election, whereas we're only dealing with a couple of months here, and we're already actually in the middle of the process. So we already have absentee ballots that are in lockdown 
um, and being protected, uh, you know, for counting on July 20th. And so there are still ballots out and people have to return them. And I'm, I would assume that we're going to see an increase in requests for absentee ballots given the fact that people aren't going to feel as safe going to the polling locations. We're working with our, the administration, the governor's administration, and our uh, emergency preparedness teams to make certain that we have all the, what they call PPEs, the, uh, all the preventive measures that we can find in terms of hand solutions and sanitizers, masks, gloves. Uh, we have tested gloves on the voting machines, so we know that those will work. And so we're going to promote the six-foot CDC requirements. So there may be a little bit more time required to vote, but we're going to keep people distanced. We're going to ask them to show us their IDs, and we won't touch their IDs, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. So we're putting together a, a pretty detailed plan on how to deal with both early voting and Election Day voting. And I think we're going to take every precaution that we can and we're going to space out our machines and people as they attend the polling locations. Additionally, I am finalizing a letter right now that is going to go out to um, our population that is 65 and older. So several years ago, Louisiana passed what we call the 65 and older program, which is they can apply for a mail ballot and they can get it for each election. So I'm going to promote that amongst that vulnerable population so that they feel protected um, and they, they can get their valid, ballot and um, participate. Well, Secretary Ardwin, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. I know you've got a lot of things uh, to, to work on and figure out. Um, so good luck to you. Amy, thank you so much. Stay safe and God bless you and your family and all the listeners. The coronavirus is already taking a tremendous toll on the global economy. This week, Bank of America told investors that, quote, we're declaring that the economy has fallen into a recession, joining the rest of the world, and it is a deep plunge. Jobs will be lost, wealth will be destroyed, and confidence depressed. Andrea Smythe is an economist and assistant professor at Howard University. I spoke with her about the tools the federal government is deploying to mitigate the financial crisis and which populations are most at risk. You know, we have to think about first to kind of stop the bleeding, to get to the root of the issue, right? And, and so the, the biggest thing right now, one, is to contain the virus. And the issue is that the, the economic consequences are tied up so intimately with the consequences on health. Once the economic system crashes, it's going to make the pandemic worse. So there's this feedback loop. So we need to be thinking holistically about healing the economy. And it includes thinking about getting this pandemic under control, first and foremost, because the length of a pandemic will determine the length of the recession and the depth of the recession. Right. So let's talk about the ways in which the government is responding, the people who have the levers of power, what the Fed has already done what Congress has already done, and what Congress and the president are talking about doing now, which includes another economic stimulus, including giving checks, whether it's $1,000 or $2,000 to every single person. How do you assess these programs' impact? 
Right. So if we start with the Federal Reserve Bank first, they're pretty much doing everything they can to fight this recession. The biggest part is to just make sure credit is available for, especially for businesses at this point where revenue is not coming in, they will need lines of credit in order to make payroll or to stay afloat during the recession so that jobs are available to go back to after we have the pandemic under control. But then there's a role for the federal government as well, and they're doing all they can as well. We're seeing unprecedented numbers in terms of fiscal stimulus and and packages going out to households and, and businesses, which is what they should be doing at this point. But it's tough because we're starting the conversation kind of in the middle of the story. In order to understand what the effects will be going forward, we have to understand what has been happening so far. So we're looking at issues like the impact on lower income households and vulnerable populations. Well, they've been ignored for the longest time, right? We've presided over the longest expansion in economic history, but we have not fixed those essential holes in the system that would have made this pandemic not as harsh as it will be. Right. So thinking about cuts in the social safety net. Dismantling the Affordable Care Act um, in terms of health care and, and then prioritizing tax cuts for corporations who are right. already profitable instead of investing in the long-term sustainability of the economies. It's just a lot of things that would have been a lot not as harsh right now if we had our foundations right coming into this, this pandemic. So this is obviously unprecedented. I know there are people who have spent their whole lives studying government response to the Great Depression. There's been a lot written about the 2008 financial crisis, but this just feels so different. It does. It does feel different. And what we we do to kind of forecast the future is to look at the past, right? Mm -hmm. But my biggest issue here, again, is thinking about low-income households and workers who are already disadvantaged. And we know that they're taking the brunt of this hit in terms of unemployment, right? The unemployment is starting off in the service sector industries, hospitality. That's where we have a lot of low-income workers, restaurants where people work in hourly wages. So when they get laid off, they have no income coming in. These people are less likely to have health insurance. So if they catch the virus, they're going to see worse outcomes in terms of health. And that's a question, too, for what this means and going forward for this younger generation, we've seen them politically aligning with, in many cases, aligning with Bernie Sanders and others who say we need big structural change in this country. The problem that we're dealing with right now needs immediate attention, but underlying this desire for big structural change. As they get older, they become parents. I mean, I'm thinking in particular of the Depression era Um, parents and the FDR era voters, you know, this this sort of way of thinking about life, about the economy, about the role of government. It's really fundamentally altered during the Great Depression. Do you think we could see something like this happening for younger people growing up at this moment in time? Right. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And um, in my research, currently, I'm looking at the effects of recessions on this, what I call a young adulthood generation. So anywhere from maybe 18 to 25. And, you know, past research has shown that living through an economic downturn really does alter their views from just their desire to take risk. They're more risk averse. 
but then importantly, it affects their their human capital investment decisions going forward. And it's funny, we talk a lot about capital investments, but we only mean capital in terms of businesses and Wall Street. But these young adults are at a crucial moment in their lives where they need to be making these human capital investments. And the way they do that is through job experiences or through formal schooling or training, right? And one, we know during a recession, they're more likely to lose their job. So a lot of these young adults, even if they're in college, they work while they're in college just to pay their way through. But they see higher, greater increases in unemployment. And if we look at this this recession particularly, they are concentrated in those industries that are hit first in terms of service industries and restaurants and bars and, and such. So that's one. But then the other side of the equation is that when state budgets are, are constrained during recessions, higher education is one of the first to be cut. And, and if you notice, even during the stimulus, there is no mention for preserving the human capital investments for these groups. And this idea of human capital investment, especially in colleges, is going to determine the foundations of the economy going forward and the resilience of the economy. Um, we know during recessions, people who have college degrees are less likely to lose their jobs. They're, they're more likely to be in jobs that, that can, they can go remote. So college degrees are a buffer from recession itself. Fighting future recessions could mean investing more in colleges. And thinking about the long-term effects on these individuals, if they don't get those human capital investments they need during their young adulthood years, then we may foresee negative and adverse effects way into their future. Andrea Smythe, thank you so much for coming on and talking us through this. Really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. No problem. Andrea Smythe is an economist and assistant professor at Howard University. We always want to hear from our listeners, but it felt especially important to hear from you this week as we all try to adjust to this new normal, life during a pandemic. So we asked you, how has your state and local government been addressing COVID-19 and have you been satisfied with their response? Many of you told us you were happy with how your state was handling this crisis. Hi, my name is Rick. I live just outside Rockford, Illinois. And I've been very pleased with the steps that Governor Pritzker has taken in order to try to uh, flatten the curve in regards to the coronavirus. He initially thought that people would be wise enough to stay home, but after St. Patrick's Day, he felt it necessary in order to close down all the restaurants and bars to try to control this virus. And uh, I've been very pleased with the steps both he and the mayor of Rockford have taken. Hi, my name is Diana O'Toole in Monument, Colorado. And I want to say that Governor Polis has been doing a fantastic job in terms of trying to get ahead of all of this. I think he was one of the first governors to start closing down social sites such as the ski resorts and restaurants, etc. This is Karen and uh, Lake Oswego, Oregon. Governor Kate Brown has ordered all colleges and universities to move online to limit interreactions. Uh, the winter term finals are scheduled and a limit of 25 students at a time will be taking the exams. Hi, my name is Lauren and I'm from Sable, New York. I wanted to uh, commend Governor Cuomo and uh, how he's handling the COVID virus. He is always on the TV. He's always explaining things. He's very calm. Um, he's very realistic. I've been tremendously impressed by the way that he's handled this. 
um, and our local officials seem to be right on top of things as well. It's just every time I turn on the TV, it's uh, Governor Cuomo, and it, it makes me happy every time I see him on there. It makes me feel better. I'm Nan calling from Seattle, and I just want to say that in many ways, we are all very lucky that this really started uh, exploding in Seattle. We have incredible government here. Governor Inslee was all over this. Our King County Executive, Executive Constantine, and the Seattle City Mayor, they all believe in science, and they all acted appropriately. And we have Fred Hutch here, uh, who did genetic mapping of the virus. The University of Washington is actually working on making its own hand sanitizer these days. Others called to say that while they were pleased by the response from their state, they were disappointed by the response from the federal government. Barbara calling from the northern Sacramento Valley in California. And I say that because I find that we are regionalizing more and more in looking at this crisis. I am so happy to be in California and to be a proud Californian right now. Our governor, Gavin Newsom, he has taken the wheel. The mayor of Sacramento, uh, Daryl Steinberg, is working hand in glove with the state. I'm happy to be in California and sad to say, I think the weak link is federal government administration. Hi, Dave Gill calling from Seattle. I'm uh, pretty pleased with how our state government and local government have been handling this. Although we would have been all a lot further along if the CDC and Trump had uh, been doing their job. Um, But we're getting by here in Seattle. We'll be okay. This is Ellen in Corvallis, Oregon. My city and my state, I believe, have done what they can as proactively as they can about COVID-19. I am very disappointed in our federal government. We always want to hear from you, so give us a call and leave us a message at 877-8-MY-TAKE and stay safe out there. election season, political memoirs abound, doorstops that sometimes divulge more than intended. No matter how diligently they present themselves in the most electable light, they always reveal themselves. Their insecurities, their fears, their ambitions. How to read a Politico on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. We've been hearing from many of you about the varying degrees of restrictions that have been placed on your daily life, whether self-imposed, urged, or even required by state and local governments. We're also seeing more and more governors asking for federal government assistance. Wendy Parmet is a professor of law and the director of Northeastern University's Center for Health Policy and Law in Boston. I asked her to help us understand where the power lies at a time like this. In the United States, government is divided. It's broken out among different levels of government. States historically have really been the primary fonts of public health powers, and Mm. states have extraordinary powers with respect to public health. We're seeing that now. But there are certainly some things that only the federal government can do. The federal government regulates interstate commerce. The federal government alone therefore controls 
what drugs are legal, what drugs are not. The federal government can control the shipment and distribution of goods across state lines to make sure, for example, that limited supplies are allocated fairly. And of course, the federal government has, you know, the power of the printing press, right? It can spend Hmm. money, it can go into deficit in a way states can't, which is really important right now. And the federal government, of course, has the extraordinary power of the U.S. military and can call up resources even greater than states can through their own National Guard. What has been interesting to watch, not particularly surprising, is to see that different states are reacting in very different ways. And to me, the two starkest examples are California, where the governor there basically putting the entire state on a stay-at-home advisory, um, and the governor of Texas saying, you know what, it's not my job to do that. I'll let municipalities and cities within Texas decide what they want to do. So I guess my question to you is, are we going to see then different states really have very different, not only reactions to this crisis, but each state may look different in terms of the human cost, social cost, and economic cost of this pandemic? I think we are going to see that One of the costs of our system, which relies so heavily on the states and localities, is that we are going to see variations, and those variations will have costs. There are some strengths to it and some advantages, and I do think one of the things we're also seeing, for example, is states engaging in a bit of copycatting each other, right? So a Mm. state comes up with some new approach and other states start to follow it, right? That's that's a strength of the federal system, of the innovation, but obviously there are also costs. One thing I need to add is that states differ from each other, not just in their political affiliations and inclinations, but also in the degree to which they themselves rely upon central authority in the governor or whether they tend to delegate and expect most of the action to happen at the local level. Right. So many states, Mm. really, public health has actually been vested in the municipal or county level. And so it's not completely surprising that states, for example, Texas that has traditionally a weak governor is following that pattern. Other states have much stronger central government within the state. The president has declared a national emergency, and yet the states can still pretty much determine their own responses to this crisis. So what does it mean to have a federal emergency then? Well, the federal emergency allows the president to utilize certain very specific powers. You know, it's not an emergency, meaning emergency, everything stops, the federal government calls it an emergency. In fact, we have several national emergencies being that have been declared during this outbreak. So the emergency under the Public Health Service Act allows for certain particular things to happen through HHS. It allows the federal government to exercise a broader 
array of quarantine powers, the Stafford Act federal emergency, which President Trump declared on the 13th of March, allows for um, him to spend money and to really call up FEMA. So we have a lot of different federal emergency authorities, but there's no just one, it's an emergency kind mm-hmm. of, and, and this is it. The president and the federal government are really using a wide array of different emergency powers. We know that in China, the authority to keep people locked down is really, and the Chinese society reaction to more government authority is very different than the American uh reaction to such a thing. And I'm wondering, you know, right now we've had a week of these somewhat voluntary shelter-in-place rules. Obviously, restaurants and others and businesses have closed. But at some point, where do we see that maybe Americans start to chafe under these sorts of things? And what can the government do to ensure that social distancing continues? I think that what the government needs to do, you know, at the state level and at the federal level, first of all, is clear messaging about the need, the severity, why it's important. You also want clear messaging about how you can make this work. And I've been very troubled that we have not received that messaging. For example, um, all the shelter-in-place orders allow people to go get food. But what people are not hearing, don't worry, we will make sure the toilet paper is there, mm. right? The, we will use right the National Guard if we need to to distribute this. Don't go out and go on a search of 10 different stores searching for toilet paper, right? I mean, people need to not only be told why it's important, but how this can be done. Wendy Parment, I want to thank you so much for coming and speaking with me today. It's my pleasure. Wendy Parmet is professor of law and the director of Northeastern University Center for Health Policy and Law in Boston. Every president faces the unexpected during their time in office. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That looks like a second plane. We just saw another plane coming in from the side. Enormous explosion at a federal building in Oklahoma City this morning was the work of terrorists. The bomb went off just as hundreds of people had showed up for work, just as children had been dropped off at a daycare center on the second floor. Pressure is building again in Washington for a new look at gas rationing. There are reports that President Carter will urge Congress to reconsider the rationing plan they rejected this spring. A president not only has a tremendous amount of power, of course, but that person also has the bully pulpit and the opportunity to set not just the response, but also the tone for the country. To help us understand the challenge ahead for President Trump, I called up my favorite presidential historian. Barbara Perry, Presidential Studies Director at UVA's Miller Center. And I started by asking her about the role of the president and the federal government at a time like this. 
It's a fascinating element to me if you look at the Constitution and the Tenth Amendment, which most people don't pay a lot of attention to, but people who believe in local and state governments pay a lot of attention to it because it says that any power that's not directly given to the federal government in the Constitution uh, or prohibited to the states, the example of that would be coining money, states can't coin their own currency, Uh, but those powers are reserved to the states, so it's called the reserved power to the states. And historically, that power had been defined as protecting the health, safety, welfare, and morals of the people. Mm. And so I would always give the example when I was teaching uh, the Tenth Amendment to my students. I'd say when I was about 10, uh, I needed to get my tetanus shot updated. And my mother happened to see that the local health department was coming to the public elementary school behind our house. So rather than bundle me in the car and take me downtown to our pediatrician, she said, we're just going to walk through the backyard. and We're going to go over to get your uh, your tetanus shot from the local health department at the local public school. And I'd always use that as example. We, she didn't try to take me to Washington or downtown to the federal building to get my shot because it's a, it was the health, the local health department. Mm-hmm. Um, now, though, as, as continually more power accrues to the federal government, uh, as we saw in 1976 in the swine flu epidemic, where President Ford went into a press conference and said, we're going to vaccinate every man, woman, and child in the United States. And I went over to the local high school gym and got my swine flu shot. That was a federal government effort led by the president. And so to your original point about where does this power come from? Well, it it comes from precedent to the president that so much of, of what we have needed in this country really since the Great Depression, when local and state governments couldn't handle the fact that 25% of the people were out of work, that power through FDR and the New Deal and the creation of a federal bureaucracy has accrued to the federal government. Then you add your point about the bully pulpit. He's that one national voice that we have. And we look to him, it's only been a him so Mm -hmm. far, going back to Washington as the father of our country. So in times of crisis, we look to him to calm us, to have the power to do something and to coordinate with state and local authorities. Now, Barbara, we've also talked about this factor a lot, which is we are in incredibly polarized times. This president is obviously incredibly polarizing. And in past experience, we've seen at a time of crisis, the country sort of rally around the flag, rally around the president. Early polling that we've had at the beginning of this crisis suggests that is not happening. Opinions of the president remain as polarized as they've been. Republicans think he's doing a great job. Democrats think he's doing a terrible job. But we're even seeing that opinions about how serious this crisis actually is, is dividing Democrats and Republicans. How unique is that? And what do you think this foretells for how when we get to the other side of this, Americans are going to view this president. I think that it shows that you you can't any longer just have a crisis and, and then have people rally around. Now, mm-hmm. let's back up to say, look at how polarized we were after Bush v. Gore right. and the Supreme Court's decision in 2000 and the vitriol of that election. And yet 9-11 happened in September of 2001, and we did rally around the flag, and we rallied around President Bush, and he had skyrocketing approval ratings. And people, except for those fringes, 
you know, who talked conspiracies, Donald Trump, for example, uh, most of the people in the main pulled together. It is, in my view, Donald Trump himself and his campaign, but also the fact that he was an anti-vaccine person developing and spinning his conspiracy theories around that as a private citizen, but a prominent one, an anti-government person, an anti-science person, an anti-expert person. You cannot turn that on a dime, either as an individual, nor can you say to the people who lined up behind you to follow you into all of those, in my view, cul-de-sacs now, um, you can't just say, oh, sorry, I didn't mean that, though he tries that often says things one thing one day says the exact opposite the next day maybe the people who follow him continue to do that but those who don't are not going to just say oh i see you said something oppositely yesterday well now i believe what you're saying today it it shows that when you have a demagogue who has played to the base instincts of the people he or she cannot suddenly become mm. a churchillian statesman even if we were this were in the era of president obama who also had a polarizing approval rating, right? Wasn't getting much support from Republicans, all of his support for from Democrats. Democrats are pretty much united around him. In a similar position, if he were dealing with this crisis, do you think he would have seen more of a rallying? I will give the example of, of an exact kind of crisis, not a necessarily a health crisis, but it had health implications, would be Hurricane or Superstorm Storm Sandy mm. in 2012. Mm. Uh, that he, first of all, learned the lessons of Katrina uh, from the Bush 43 administration, tried to take as many actions ahead of time as he could, you know, went on national television to tell people in the areas that would be affected from the middle Atlantic to New England, take cover. Uh, follow what your local and state officials are saying. If they're saying to evacuate, you must evacuate. And then remember after it happened, he went to those places and, and everyone distinctly remembered him meeting with Chris Christie before the cameras and they're having good things to say about each other and that rallying around him that, that people had. So while you're right that, yes, in these polarizing times, it's harder to rally around presidents, uh, who have polarized approval ratings, when a president seems to be sincere, as I think Obama was, in trying to reach the people in the midst of a crisis through bipartisanship, that certainly helps. Barbara Perry, as always, thank you so much for helping to uh, <laughs> helping us better understand the presidency. My pleasure. And thank you so much, Amy. And let's all stay safe. Professor Barbara Perry is Presidential Studies Director at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. So I have some thoughts here. Like many of you, I am struggling. I feel helpless and anxious and distracted all at the same time. In just one week, our lives have been completely upended, and there's a very real chance that they may never look the same again. Kids don't have school or daycare. Those of us who work in offices are now struggling to adjust to life in the virtual workplace. Those of us with hourly or contract work are losing jobs and our economic livelihoods. We worry about friends and family who are sick or who are vulnerable to this illness. My job is to analyze, synthesize, report, explain. So how will the social, emotional, physical, and economic costs of this pandemic impact our politics and an election that's only eight months away? Well, here's how I see it today. 
I've often been asked whether this era of political polarization we're in is permanent. My boys answered that it would take a crisis of epic proportions to undo it. But here we are, in the middle of a budding crisis, and polls show that instead of bringing us together, this crisis has revealed how divided we remain. Opinions of how the president is handling this crisis are divided among familiar lines. Democrats think he's failing. Republicans think he's doing a great job. And this division extends to how seriously we are taking the COVID-19 pandemic. A Pew Research poll out this week found that almost two-thirds of Democrats think COVID-19 is a major threat to the health of the country, while just a third of Republicans feel the same way. One reason we're not reacting similarly to the coronavirus as we did to, say, 9-11 is that this is a slow-moving crisis. Of course, unless you've been personally impacted, you can't see it. We read about people getting sick, we see the death toll numbers on TV, and yet it's not the same as seeing the World Trade Center in smoldering ruins. Instead of seeing those horrible images of a plane hitting a building, we watch or listen to experts giving us projections and probabilities of infection. Hospital workers are raising the alarm on equipment and adequate bed capacity. But these things are not right in front of us. We can't see them. We also know that we're in a time when our institutions have lost credibility with Americans and when outsiders are seen as more knowledgeable and trustworthy than the experts. The good news, at least thus far, is that Americans are listening to the experts at the CDC and to their state and local officials. The Pew poll I mentioned earlier found that 83% of Americans feel confident in the CDC, and about three-quarters of us have confidence in our state and local officials. And here's the other thing that makes me feel hopeful. Americans are incredibly resilient and optimistic and generous. We see it in our own communities, people helping out where they can and how they can. We're headed into the unknown, and that is really scary. But the more we act like the community that we are, the less alone and frightened we will be. We'll be here with you also here at Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. What I'm doing with the time during social distancing is decluttering. So I'm trying to get some good out of bad. Beth from Philadelphia. My name is Jesus Ramirez. I'm calling from St. Paul, Minnesota. And currently right now, I'm taking a break from being at home because myself and my partner are having a time and there's nowhere to run to and nowhere to go to. This The house is going to certain big. And so it's interesting that day too. And it's tough already. This is Nancy from Charleston, South Carolina. My husband is out of state taking care of his mom. So I'm spending more time on the phone than I ever have before. I'm doing a lot of kayaking, watching shows like Fear the Walking Dead, and I have a stack of library books. I'm also listening to a lot of NPR. 30 years ago, in the weeks following Hurricane Hugo, the radio was a huge help in keeping people from falling apart. And now it is again. So thank you. This is Mark and Linda from Mendota Heights, Minnesota. We are celebrating our 53rd anniversary, and rather than going out for a romantic dinner, we're going to make a really nice dinner here at home for the two of us. So little changes, but the spirit's still there. That's all for us today. I want to give a special thanks to our production team. They have been working so hard to make this program sound as good as it does under incredibly challenging circumstances. 
And those folks are our producers, Amber Hall, Patricia Jacob, and Jose Oliveras. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Vince Fairchild is our engineer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our administrative assistant. And our executive producer is Lee Hill. Thanks so much for listening. Please stay safe. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.